The scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews 11, verse 4, and Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16, and verse 25. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of our God endures forever. You can be seated. Well, good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. We are continuing our sermon series called By Faith. And each week what we're doing is tracing our way through Hebrews chapter 11 and looking more closely at some of the Old Testament saints that the author of Hebrews tells us lived by faith. And our hope is that we would learn about their faith, we would consider our own faith, and then always look forward to the perfecter of our faith, Jesus. So last week we considered the topic of faith just generally. Today we are going to be looking at our first Old Testament saint, Abel. And as we do so, we'll have three points, offerings, sin, and hope. And so let's begin with our first point offerings. I have a friend who 
once took a woman out on a date, and they went out to dinner, and shortly after their food arrived, his date took a few bites of her entree and said, Ew, this is terrible. And then she pushed her plate toward my friend and said, You can have my leftovers. And my friend was like, uh, No, thank you. Because who wants someone else's leftovers? I'm not talking leftovers from a delicious meal that was so big you didn't get to finish. I'm talking leftovers that someone else did not want. Who wants someone's leftovers? Well, our text today centers on a different story about offering leftover food to someone else, except it was in the form of an offering to God. But before we get too far in Cain and Abel's story, Let's quickly backtrack. We're not too far into the Bible. This story is probably on page three of your printed Bible. So let's briefly backtrack. Uh, We're reading about the earth's very first family, Adam and Eve and their two sons, Cain and Abel. And just one chapter earlier than our text in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind happens. Adam and Eve, uh, they don't have faith in God. They don't trust him at least in a particular moment, and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that brings sin into the world. It damages their relationship with God. It damages their relationship with one another. It damages the relationship with creation itself. Childbirth becomes painful. Work becomes painful. And they're forced to leave the garden. They are banished from the Garden of Eden. But there was still some grace and mercy extended by God toward Adam and Eve. He clothed them, gave them clothes to cover the shame and embarrassment that came along with sin. And he promised them that one day, through Eve's offspring, he would send someone who would crush the head of the serpent that deceived them. And that's where our story begins. Obviously, and in order for God to one day send offspring through Eve, she has to have at least one child. And she does in Genesis 4. She has two. She has two sons. She has Cain, and then she has Abel. So Cain is the older brother. Abel is the younger brother. Cain is a worker of the ground. He's a, he's a farmer. He's a gardener. Abel is a keeper of sheep. He's a shepherd. And what happens is that each of these brothers makes an offering to the Lord. Cain, because he works the ground, he makes an offering from the fruit of the ground. And Abel, because he is a shepherd, he makes an offering from the flock of his sheep. And our passage tells us that tells us what God thought about each of these offerings in verses 4 and 5. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, why did God have regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's offering? What was the difference between them? Some have said that it was because Cain offered fruit and Abel offered a sheep that God preferred Abel's since Sheep would supposedly be better than fruit. It's actually a misconception. It was totally appropriate for Cain to offer fruit because it's an offering from the domain in which he works. He works the ground, and so he would offer fruit from the ground as his offering. Abel shepherds sheep, and so he would offer sheep. And so there's no problem with Cain offering fruit. 
That's not why God did not have regard for his offering. So again, why did God have regard for Abel's offering, but not Cain's? There are a few reasons, but they all essentially boil down to faith. That's what our verse in Hebrews 11 tells us. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. It was more acceptable because it was offered by faith, which suggests that Cain's was less acceptable because it was not offered by faith. And the Genesis account actually gives us some clues for how we know that Abel's offering was made by faith and Cain's was not. In verses 3 and 4, it says that Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So you notice the difference. Clearly, the passage is emphasizing that Abel's offering was from the firstborn of his flock, and it was the fat portions. It means that Abel offered the best parts of his best sheep. Cain's offering, on the other hand, is just said to be of the fruit of the ground. No qualifiers, just some fruit. No indication that it was the first fruits. Remember first fruits from the Sermon on Tithes and Offerings? No indication that it was the first fruits or the best of the fruit offered by Cain. Just some fruit. Leftover fruit that Cain didn't care as much about. Now, it's totally possible that each of them could have made an offering of equal quality, and yet one of them offered it by faith and the other offered it without faith. It's actually totally possible to make an offering of lower quality with more faith than someone who makes an offering of higher quality. This is a point that Jesus actually makes in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 12. Uh, You can read there about the poor widow's offering. She gives an offering of one penny, just one penny. But Jesus says that this poor widow has given more than all those who objectively contributed more money to the offering box because they all contributed out of their wealth and their abundance, and she contributed out of her poverty. And so quality or quantity alone is not how an offering is judged. Offerings are not judged against other offerings. They're judged relative to what one could have offered. They're judged relative to what you had to steward. And so we see that really it's not the offering itself being judged. It's the one offering that's being judged. It's the worshiper that's being judged. Did you notice that Genesis says not only that God had regard or did not have regard for each respective offering, it says that God had regard or did not have regard for each person. Verses 4 and 5 again. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Because again, offerings are not primarily about the thing itself offered. They're about the worshiper offering it, and that worshiper's heart in offering, that worshiper's faith in offering it. Remember that Law of God passage, Hosea 6.6. God does not want sacrifice and burnt offerings ultimately. He wants steadfast love. He wants knowledge. He wants faith. He wants you, the worshiper. And so it seems that while Abel offered the best offering he could, the firstborn and the fat portions of the firstborn, Cain did not offer the best he could have. And it's easy to see how that ties into each's faith, right? What each offered to the Lord is directly linked to their faith or their 
lack of faith. For able to give the firstborn and the fat portions, the best of the best, for able to do that, it required faith. And for Cain to withhold his best, it required a lack of faith. In these offerings, Abel clearly, by faith, has entrusted and given himself to the Lord. Abel is essentially saying, God, you can have the best of the best of my flock because I so fully trust you with my entire life. Cain, on the other hand, withheld from God. He did not entrust himself fully to the Lord. And he's essentially saying, if I give my first fruits, if I give my best fruits, then how will I know that I'll have enough further down the line. So the question for each of you then is, which of those sounds more like you right now? God, you can have my first and my best because I so fully trust you with my entire life. Or God, I can't give you my first and my best because I don't trust you will care for me later. So here are my leftovers. Which one is you? And I don't want to turn this into another sermon on tithes and offerings since we just had one in the past month. But you can't talk about Cain and Abel without at least mentioning offerings a little. But beyond the offering in and of itself, we also have to talk about the faith and trust of offerings. Considering your offering should lead you to ask, do I trust God? Do I trust God enough to give him my first and my best and in all realms of life? Do you trust God enough to give him the first of your money? Or do you only give what's left over? If you find yourself consistently only giving what's left over, that's a diagnostic. You likely don't trust God fully to care and provide for you later on. And so you take matters into your own hands. I'll make sure I'm provided for first. If there's anything left over, God, you can have that. Or do you trust God enough to give him the first of your time? the best of your time? Or do you only give God your leftover time? After I've done everything else I want to do, if I have time left over, I'll worship on a Sunday. If I have time left over, I'll read the Bible today. If I have time left over, I'll volunteer or serve or use my gifts for the kingdom. If I have time. Again, if you find yourself consistently only giving your leftover time, it's a diagnostic that you don't fully trust God to give you whatever the things you do make time for supposedly do. What does overworking give you that God can't give you? What, is, what does staying up too late on a Saturday night give you that God can't give you? What does endless entertainment give you that God can't give you? You know, like Cain gave leftovers of his fruit. Do you give God leftovers of your time? Do you give God leftovers of your money? Do you give God leftovers of your life? Because again, offerings to God are a sign of giving everything to God. If you give your first and your best to God, then it's a sign you really have given your whole life to God. But if you only give your leftovers to God, it's a sign that you're, something's holding you back from giving it all to God, from giving your whole life to God. And God is not interested in some of you. He's interested in all of you. Jesus didn't die to save some of you. He died to save all of you. And so, by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Abel offered God 
all of himself. He so entirely trusted God with his entire life that he could offer his first and his best sheep. The Lord wants all of you. Will you also give all of yourself to him? Because you can. If, if you're not giving all of yourself to God, then you're giving yourself to other things, whatever they are. But whatever those things are that you do give yourself to, they can't truly care for you like God does. Only God will take care of you fully. And he will take care of all of you. He put the stars in the sky, but he's mindful of you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows exactly what you need. You can give God your entire life because he's the only one who could actually care for your entire life. He's smarter than you. He's better equipped than you to care for you. So you can trust God with your entire life. By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice because Abel offered God all of himself. Now, if you're here and you're consciously giving God only some of you, then I have to warn again that that is a sign of a lack of faith. We can kind of deceive ourselves into thinking that as long as we're partway loyal to God, as long as we give God some, as long as we're one foot in, then that's good enough. But that's a really dangerous position. Uh, because we should think of our trust and loyalty to the Lord in a, a more, as a more black and white issue. A lot of things in life, and especially the Christian life, can be gray or nuanced, but your trust, your loyalty is really a black and white issue. And I'm not talking about our struggles. Like if you say that you struggle with something or have some temptation, some fear, uh, to call it a struggle implies that you wish you did not struggle with it, right? The, the struggle is to not give in to temptation or to not live by fear. The struggle itself demonstrates your trust and loyalty to the Lord. And so we're not talking about your struggles. We all struggle, and that's good. A struggle means you're trying to fight back for who you're loyal to, to God. But I'm talking about when we misalign with God, when we only give God parts of our lives but not others, when you don't struggle when you should be struggling, and instead you just don't care, you're apathetic about it, or maybe even worse, you delight in having it both ways. You can punch your get-out-of-hell-free card on Sundays, but then set yourself against God on Monday. And that's a very dangerous way to live. It's dangerously close to walking down the path of Cain. And that takes us to our second point, sin. We're uh, sort of at a peak in the wildfire season, something that we're all too well aware of here in California. And uh, I was reading earlier this week, a woman was charged in California for setting the fawn fire. It's a wildfire that's burning in Shasta County, and it's consumed something like 8,000 acres, 4,000 people have been displaced, 100 structures have been destroyed. And the reason that they were able to charge this woman was because you know, at the same place and same time that the fire started, witnesses saw her walking away from a bushy area with a lighter in her pocket. And now that fire has spread to thousands of acres. One woman with a lighter, 8,000 acres burned. That's what sin is like. All it takes is one little spark, and it can spread like 
wildfire. And we'll see that's eventually just what happens in our passage. After the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but not for Cain and his offering, how does Cain respond? Picking up in verses 5 through 7, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so essentially, Cain has sinned by making an offering that was not acceptable, by not making an offering by faith. And God does not have regard for Cain and his offering. That makes Cain angry. What should have happened is Cain should have repented. Cain should have said that he was sorry, that he was wrong, that he would repent and make an acceptable sacrifice. But instead, he doubles down. And he gets very angry. He doesn't respond to God's correction in humility. He responds in pride. He thinks that he's right. He's arguing with God, and he thinks that he's right. But did you notice how God responds to Cain? Graciously, mercifully, gently. He explains to Cain that if he does well, he will be accepted. God isn't randomly accepting Abel and rejecting Cain. There's a clear and logical reason that Abel was accepted and Cain was rejected. Therefore, there is a way for Cain to course correct, to improve and find acceptance. But he has to repent and turn back toward righteousness. If not, God warns him, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, Cain, but you must rule over it. Again, God is being gracious to Cain in the midst of his pride by warning him. God is absolutely clear with Cain about what will happen if he does not repent. Sin is crouching like a lion ready to pounce. Sin wants to destroy you, Cain, but you have an opportunity right now to rule over it. Kill the sin, Cain, or it will kill you. Don't you see how God's warnings to us, God's law, God's word, do you see how those things are actually gracious? God doesn't correct you just to be a buzzkill. He corrects you because sin leads to death. He corrects you because your sin flows from not trusting in him. And if you don't trust in someone, then you can't have a thriving love relationship with them. But God wants your trust. He wants your relationship with him to flourish. And so he offers warnings and corrections and his law because he's gracious. And he offers these through a myriad of instruments, uh, through the liturgy of corporate worship or the preaching of his word like we're doing right now or through other believers you know. God offers you correction in all sorts of ways because he cares about you, because he's gracious toward you, because he loves you. So how do you respond when you receive God's correction? How do you respond to his warnings? Do you receive them in humility? Do you repent? Or do you get defensive? Do you double down? Or do you get maybe apathetic and just brush it off? The response of 
faith is to receive God's warnings, to take them seriously and let them move you to repentance. Look, living by faith does not mean that you'll never sin. But living by faith does mean that when you inevitably do sin, when you are mistaken, you will own the mistake. When you've made an error, you will acknowledge it. When you have sinned, you will confess. You will repent. You'll endeavor to die to that sin, to kill it, and to live more and more unto righteousness. That's the response of faith in the midst of sin, repentance. But unfortunately, Cain does not respond in faith, does he? You know what happens? Cain triples down. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The first murder. And it's one brother murdering another. Fratricide. God warned Cain, but he didn't listen. And his jealousy overcame him, and he killed his younger brother. Because Abel offered a more acceptable offering to God, Cain killed him. It makes Abel the first martyr, murdered for his faith. So we're off to a real encouraging start in this By Faith sermon series. If you live by faith like Abel did, someone might kill you. You know, I hope that this erases any illusions we might be tempted to have that the life of faith guarantees a sort of easy or more pleasant or more fruitful life. Don't get me wrong, living by faith will often have benefits. It's good to be living in line with God's design. But it also might mean that someone who hates God and hates you will persecute you or even kill you. Because it's a fallen world now. What's supposed to happen doesn't always happen. Brothers are supposed to love and care for each other, not kill each other. But Cain has just killed Abel because of Abel's faith. What's crazy is that the Lord still gives Cain a chance to confess and repent. In verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? This is like Cain's last chance. The Lord gives him one last chance to confess and repent of what he has done. He's made an inadequate offering to the Lord, and the Lord corrected him and warned him to change. He didn't. And then he went and murdered his brother, and the Lord is still giving him a chance to confess and repent and change. What does Cain do? Where is Abel, your brother, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, at this point, Cain is just spiraling out of control. He is self-deluded. He's lying directly to God, and he has the audacity to ask if he is his brother's keeper. This is like classic narcissism. Someone points out a flaw, and you respond by claiming that they're overstating your responsibility as a ploy to deny any responsibility. Cain isn't his brother's keeper. God's not saying that, but Cain is Abel's brother, and he killed him. Even if he's not his brother's keeper, he's still called to a higher level of responsibility and care than murder. So God finally stops giving Cain the opportunity to repent, and he brings curses upon him. He curses him from the ground. He will no longer be able to farm or garden. The the ground isn't going to yield any more fruit for Cain. 
You know, Cain used to pour water on the ground and it would bear fruit. Now that he has poured his brother's blood on the ground, the ground is not going to give him any more fruit. And he's going to be forced to wander as a fugitive. He'll have no home. And he has to leave his home now and head east of Eden to the land of Nod. And Nod means wandering, essentially no home, further from the presence of the Lord. So the point is this, kill sin when God warns you or sin will kill you. Sin is dangerous. It's like a lighter in some dry brush that eventually becomes a wildfire. And so you need to kill it. You need to snuff it out. Look how quickly sin spread in just two chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve's sin was eating some fruit. Cain makes an inadequate offering, has jealousy, murders his brother. It has escalated quickly. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, in a reflection quote, says it like this, Cain first fails at the altar, and because he fails at the altar, he fails in the field. It's Cain's failure of worship that leads him to further failures of ethics. And you might think I'm beating a dead horse, but I cannot emphasize enough just how much of your Christian life, discipleship, ethics, mission, all of it flows out of this time right now with your worship. Our passage shows us that it's not an exaggeration to say that a failure to worship can lead to murder because sin escalates quickly. That's the point of this passage. Sin can escalate very quickly, and so you need to kill it. However God reveals your sin to you, whether it's by the Holy Spirit's prompting, through prayer, through reading the scriptures, through a time of renewal in our worship service, through a sermon from a friend offering a correction, however God reveals your sin to you, you need to respond quickly with confession and repentance. You know, no one wakes up just one day and decides to ruin their life like Cain did. It happens over the course of several seemingly small decisions not to repent of sin. Cain's sin started with a lack of trust, which then became inadequate offering, which then became jealousy of his brother's offering, which then became murder. There are seemingly small sins in your life that you'll be tempted to take lightly because they don't hurt anyone, which, first of all, is not the measure of whether something is a sin or not. The Tenth Commandment is do not covet. Coveting does not hurt anyone. It's still a sin against God's law. But there are small sins in your life that, if taken lightly, will grow into sins that will inevitably hurt you or someone else. And you might think, this is just a Bible story. It doesn't really happen in real life. Did you read the news this week? Boyfriend and girlfriend take a months-long road trip in the summer, early August. There's police body cam footage of a domestic dispute that they have. A month later, they find her body in a national park. What do you think happened between the day they left on that road trip and the day she died? Seemingly small sins grew. And so you must kill your sin and get off the path of Cain. The path of Cain is a path toward death. And that's not the path that Christ died to put you on. Jesus died. Jesus took your sin and nailed it to the cross so that you would die to your sin. So respond in faith and repent. Trust God with your sin. Bring it to him. Bring your sin into the light and let it be killed. 
You know, Jesus took the eternal consequences of your sin to the cross and died so that we would die to our sin and live more and more unto righteousness. But you have to trust him with it. You have to bring it to him. You have to walk in the light. You can't walk down the path of Cain continually rejecting opportunities to repent. When God graciously points out your need for forgiveness, take him up on it. Confess, repent, and walk in forgiveness and newness of life. Look, if you're holding on to some sin in your life right now, it's not too late to kill it. If the Lord is bringing something to mind that you finally need to, want to leave behind, you've never been able to before, here's what you need to do. You First of all, you need to tell him. You need to tell God. All of this is pointless if we pursue it apart from God, right? So bring your sin to God. Pray, confess to him. But God in his mercy and grace has also given us means of grace in our life. The church, the community of believers is one of them. And so we need one another to kill our sin. So you might need to find a brother or sister and tell them. Tell them also the sin that you need killed. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. One of the strongest weapons that we have against sin is one another. So bring people into your struggle. Pray for one another. Ask to be prayed for so that you may be healed. And if you can't bring yourself to tell a brother or sister just quite yet, you can tell me. I'll pray with you. I'll pray for you. I'll walk with you and we'll do some soul care. I know it probably feels embarrassing, when I see people confess their sins to brothers or sisters or to me, it actually makes me have more respect for them. I don't respect their sin, of course, but I respect their repentance because it's a sign to me that the gospel is real to them, that they really trust in the gospel to confess. That when they pray the Lord's Prayer and they say, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, they really mean it and they want it to start with them and their life. Because look, if the gospel isn't true, then yeah, keep your sins covered. Keep it hidden. Keep it in the dark. That's the logical thing to do if the gospel is not true. But if the gospel is true, and the gospel is true, then there's forgiveness for sins. There's cleansing for sin. There's clothing for your unrighteousness, for your nakedness. You can bring your sin to God and he will forgive you. You can bring your sin into the light with others. You can be healed by Christ's wounds. And so don't leave here today without dealing with your sin. If you don't deal with your sin, it will spread like wildfire and it could literally kill you. Kill sin or it will kill you. Okay, an entire point about sin can be easy to make us feel a little bit hopeless. And so let's go ahead and move to our final point, hope. Let's let hope have the final word. Despite the awful, awful things that happen in our passage, there are still glimmers of hope throughout. Did you notice them? Did you notice the glimmers of hope? In fact, everyone in the passage has some glimmer of hope. Cain has 
some hope. Adam and Eve have some hope. Even Abel has hope. So let's look for each of these. First, Cain's hope. Even with all the judgment God brought against Cain, he still extended him some grace. He didn't kill him outright as punishment. And then he actually made it so that no one else could kill Cain either. He put a mark on him. God was gracious to Cain. And what's true for Cain is true even today. Even the wicked experience God's grace. Not saving grace, but common grace. Even Cain had some sense of grace, some sense of hope. The mark of God put on him. A constant reminder of God's protection. A constant reminder that God is gracious. Unfortunately, Scripture gives us no indication that he ever chose to respond to God's grace. But he still had the opportunity to do so even after murdering his brother. Maybe a faint glimmer of hope, but a glimmer nonetheless. Second, Adam and Eve's hope. Remember in Genesis 3, God promised Eve that one day the descendant of hers would crush the head of the serpent. But how in the world is that going to happen now? Adam and Eve just went from having two sons to having none. Abel is dead, obviously, and Cain is now exiled and estranged. He's as good as dead. And so Adam and Eve have no sons and they have no hope. I mean, think of the heartbreak and confusion for Adam and Eve, one of their sons killing their other son. It's a nightmare. And the promise for a descendant must have seemed completely hopeless at this point. But of course, it wasn't hopeless. Verse 25, at the end of the chapter, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. God did not forget his promise to Eve. He gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth. And there's an interesting little difference between what Eve says at the birth of Seth than what she said at the birth of Cain. Did you catch it? When Cain is born, she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And the sense is that she played the major role in accomplishing this. I got a son, the Lord helped too, I guess. But with Seth, she says, God has appointed for me another offspring. God gets all the credit. Not I made this happen, but God appointed for me. God gets the credit because hope is not something we can get for ourselves. Hope is a gracious gift that God gives us. God gives Adam and Eve hope through the gift of Seth. Their lineage will continue until someone comes to crush the snake's head. Finally, Abel's hope. You might be wondering, how in the world can Abel have any hope? He's dead. It's over. There is no hope. Well, with man, you would be right. There would be no hope, but with God, there is hope. Death does not have the final word with God. And so Abel still has hope even from beyond the grave. And so what exactly is Abel's hope? Verse 10, this is what God says to Cain. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood is crying out to God. And what is it crying out for? 
It's crying out for vindication. Abel's blood is begging God for vindication. Prove that I was faithful, God. Prove that it was not in vain that I trusted you. Let everyone know that my death was unjust. Passage in Hebrews actually references this last sentence. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Even though Abel is dead, he is still speaking. Though he's dead, he's still crying out to God for vindication. He's still hoping in God from beyond the grave. In fact, everyone who has ever been martyred is doing the same thing. There's a passage in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, and it says that when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So Abel's blood, the blood of every martyr, calls out to God in hope for vindication. That's all they can do. Hope from beyond the grave that one day God will set the record straight and vindicate them for the injustice they suffered at the hands of wicked men. The blood of Abel cries out, Vindicate me, God. But God's going to do even better than that. He's going to make all things new. In the very next chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, it describes the future hope we have. And in Hebrews 12, 24, it says that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Abel's blood cries out for the only thing it can cry out for, vindication. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than Abel's. Vindication and more. The blood of Christ cries out even louder for cleansing. The blood of Christ cries out even louder for forgiveness. The blood of Christ cries out even louder for reconciliation for all who place their faith in him. And so somehow, some way, Jesus will make it possible, not only for those who suffered and died for their faith to be vindicated, to be proved righteous in their faith for him, but also to make it possible for those who committed such persecutions to be cleansed and forgiven if they would confess and turn back to God in repentance. If somehow in heaven, according to Isaiah 11, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, a cow and a bear can graze together, a lion will eat straw alongside an ox, a nursing child can play over a cobra's hole, and no one will be hurt, nothing will be destroyed, nothing will be killed anymore. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. What in this fallen world could not be accomplished? Harmony, love, care, shalom? What in this fallen world could not be accomplished will be the truest of all realities in heaven. Abel's blood can't imagine crying out for anything better than vindication. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant in his blood, cries out for even something even better. Grace, forgiveness, hope for anyone. Jesus willingly and joyfully says, Punish me instead of punishing them. Let my blood cover them and cleanse them. That's your Savior. That's your 
hope. That's who you can trust with your entire life. Let's pray.